Okay, today we are talking about what is sure in this life. Two things. I don't even need to say what they are. You know what I was going to say. That's attributed to Ben Franklin, but you can find uh, instances of death and taxes before him. But we might also add homework, dishes. Um, I've got a new friend uh, over in Fells, and he is a small-time professional wrestler. This is the first professional wrestler I actually know now. His name's Brian. And so uh, there have been a couple times where he's uh, put on WWF, like the old school ones from the 1980s, which is what I grew up on. And uh, when I was looking around here about this, you know, what is sure in life, death and taxes, Vince McMahon also said, and Randy Savage. You may not know who that is, but you're about to find something awesome, right? And so here, here we are, action is ramping up. But there's also teaching in Jesus' last uh, week as well. You can see at the end here in 21, 37, and 38, at the end of this, right before we start to really go. And every day he was teaching in the temple, but at night he went out and lodged on the mount called Olivet. And early in the morning all the people came to him in the temple to hear him. The people wanted to hear Jesus teach. So we have a couple of those today. And then next week we're going to be talking about the Last Supper because we're in this... It's sort of frustrating to me, but I love the church calendar. How we got to do Jesus' entrance into Jerusalem the week before Palm Sunday, which makes sense. But that means we got to like get out of order on the weeks getting up there. Oh, well, I don't worry too much about it. So next week we're going to talk about Jesus' last night before his death. And then we're going to talk about Palm Sunday and then, of course, Easter Sunday. So just think, last week if you were here, or you got to listen, we talked about crying and cleaning. And this week we're talking about death and taxes. What a great time to be at church, right? Hope you're encouraged. Okay, death. Let's start with death. People die in weird ways. I was reading this week about a man who died from deodorant. Reading about a man who grew his beard really long and he would always stick it in his uh, robe. And then one time there was a fire and he went out, forgot to stick it in his robe, tripped on his beard, fell into the water face down, hit his head, drowned. Trimmed the beards. Uh, You know, there there are these 20-year-olds, especially like in Korea, that are dying from just playing video games straight for a week. 450 people a year die from falling out of bed. 150 people a year die from falling coconuts. 24 people a year die from champagne corks popping. And I even found someone who died from black licorice, which I think is delicious, but now I'm scared. Drank so much of it, he got low in potassium and his heart stopped. Okay, we all die. There's lots of cool ways, terrible ways. It's happening. At the beginning of our Lenten season, Ash Wednesday reminds us of this. 
And the, the pastor will put on your forehead ashes and say, from dust you have come and to dust you will return. We have several passages here where Jesus reflects on death. Look at 21 verses 36 through, or 24 through, 34 through 36. But watch yourselves, lest your hearts be weighed down with dissipation and drunkenness and cares of this life, and that day come upon you suddenly like a trap. For it will come upon all who dwell on the face of the earth. But stay awake at all times, praying that you may have strength to escape all these things that are going to take place and to stand before the Son of Man. All are going to die. All are going to face judgment. All are going to stand before the Son of God, the Son of Man. And Jesus teaches that this whole world is going to come crashing down. The nations and the kingdoms. This is in 21, 10 through 19. You can see it there as he teaches about this. The earthquakes and the famines. Has Daniel, the book of Daniel and the book of Revelation become realized? And we see Jesus returning. But Jesus says, I'll be with you. I'll be with you when that happens. But he does say the temple is going to crumble to the ground. We talked about that last week as well. The city of God will be destroyed. Jerusalem and the temple stand in for the place that God dwells. Now remember the temple, it's amazing. It would be one of the most incredible buildings in the world, especially at the time. It still is. It's filled with gold and and sacrifices and noises and activity and people, but it's also filled with the Ark of the Covenant. The Ten Commandments are in there. The Holy of Holies. And this has happened before. The temple has been destroyed before. And it's been rebuilt. And it's going to be destroyed in 70 A.D. when the Romans take it down and wipe it out. And now, I don't think it's ever going to be rebuilt, personally. The dome of the rock is on top of it. And the Jewish people don't care as much about it than to just be annihilated if they touch that. In fact, the Jewish people mostly are secular. uh, And that uh, faith part is absent for a lot of them. Not all of them. And so the temple isn't really a, a super important aspect of their lives. And of course, they've... Uh, lived without it for so long we all die the temple dies we go through wars and death that's on our mind right now so do we have hope where do we find hope okay this gets us to what uh, ronnie read for us we need to talk about the pharisees and the sadducees we've talked about the pharisees a bit they are scholars and scribes They are scrupulous about the law. They are extremely faithful to their understanding of the law. But the Sadducees, they are more priestly, not not as much scholars and scribes. They're more priestly. They're wealthy modernists. They are not supernaturalists. They especially do not believe in the resurrection. It's very important to them. And so they, they are theological materialists. What you see is this world. They're also religious aristocrats. And they want a turn at tricking 
Jesus. The Pharisees and the Sadducees are not normally on the same team. They don't like each other. But when there's a common enemy, they work together. This is similar to, I think this is my second office reference already, where Dwight says, Jim is my enemy. But it turns out that Jim is also his own worst enemy. And the enemy of my enemy is my friend. So Jim is actually my friend. But because he is his own worst enemy, the enemy of my friend is my enemy. So actually Jim is my enemy. He goes on like that for a while. It never gets old. So these two are working together, and they come at this staple question, this Leverite question about this Leverite marriage. This is the concept where if you die without children, the, the woman, if her husband's died, then she goes to the next brother. It's sort of scary and creepy, I know. Uh, so you, she would be then marrying the next brother in line. So they could carry on. It actually is a way to protect the women. Um, and so, so this is the, the question. And it, it, think about Judah and Tamar, second Tamar reference. Tamar falls into this because her husband died, and she should go to Judah. He doesn't want her, and that's how she ends up tricking him and becoming in the line of Jesus. And so they go through this absurd scenario where a woman has seven brothers die. Now, I was like, I think the seventh one is like, dude, I do not want to marry you, lady. I don't know what is wrong with you, but all my brothers are dead after they married you. Think about it. But, okay, so they go through this thing, and this is a common question that they probably have tried several times. After all this, whose husband will be hers in the, the resurrection? Jesus doesn't take the bait. So they assume this one-to-one world, this world, next world parallel. What happens in this world is what happens in the next world, right? It's similar in some ways to sort of a Mormon position a little bit, where they talk about celestial marriage and they make it all fanciful and crazy. And Jesus has a totally different concept, and he blows their minds. Number one, he affirms the resurrection. He said, this resurrection is 100% true. There is a connection between this world and the next. It's not a one-to-one correlation, but it's not a zero correlation. It will be us, but we will be somehow transformed. And then he gets at it really by talking about marriage. When we get to that new heavens and new earth. We won't need marriage anymore. We will be in a different state. We'll still be us, but the things that we have in this world won't all be needed. Now this blows my mind because I've known Julie for about 31 years out of my 51 years of life. We've been married 28 of those years. She is certainly by are my best friend easily. And to think that we're not going to be married anymore, I don't know. makes me sad on this side of things, but I have to know that God knows more than me. I figured that out at least. So it's going to be something even better. That somehow we are going to know each other, but not need that 
bind anymore. So we don't exactly know how that's going to be, but we can think about what's it going to be like in the new heavens and new earth when there's no more sin. How are we going to be transformed and yet still us? We don't know. We can speculate a bit. The point is that there will be death and judgment. That is coming. Jesus makes very clear about that. And that we will be exalted and beautiful and wise and powerful and humble in this endless, never-ending joy where death is defeated and is no longer present. And I'm going to get to see my dad again. And there's another person that I want to see. His name is Andre. Andre, his dad is a, a Ghanaian. His mom is a, a Oklahoman. And they had two uh, previous daughters. And, and then Andre was born. And they were so thrilled to have Andre. And Andre had a heart defect. And so they had several uh, um, procedures planned. And the last one was the scariest one. And he came through with flying colors. He was doing so great. And then a month later, he died in 20 minutes. No one knew why. He wasn't sick. It wasn't because of complications. They still don't know why. Two years old. I remember this uh, so well because I was asked to come to the funeral, which I get asked to do, but I wasn't going to do the funeral. And because, uh, you know, the black church, I was so respected, and they pulled me up on the front dais, right? And so I was sitting there watching everyone come look at the casket of little Andre. And it was the most anguish-filled funeral that I have been to because I was on this side of it watching each person come up and look at this two-year-old. just wrecked me. It's good to go to funerals to be reminded of the truth of this life. My son Drew, he just uh, spoke at a funeral for his good friend Jack who died from cancer. He was 21. Death is coming. Taxes are coming too. I'll take taxes over death. I'd rather not have either. So uh, you're probably getting your stuff together, sending it in. Um, And, you know, of course... With us moving, we have all these things to take care of. I don't know what to do about cars and car tags and insurance. And, of course, we had to fill out things for rent. And we're filling out paperwork to sell our house. Praise the Lord. And Jesus often talks about money. He talks about it all the time. He talks about it a lot more than some of the topics that you think are on his mind. Now, remember, he had just cleared the temple talked about that he had just talked about the wicked tenants remember this and they had come to destroy the son he's talked about that twice and they hate that story and they want him arrested but you can see how popular he is people are coming to hear him teach and so they want to stop him and so they come at him with this other trick question that ronnie also read they want to know whether they should pay their taxes. Think about how we talked about Zacchaeus pretty recently. 
Think about the tax collector and the Pharisee and the tax collector. Then we have Zacchaeus, and now we have another tax discussion. And they want the Messiah to get rid of the Romans. Anything that has to do with the Romans, they, they want out of their land. They are an occupied people, paying taxes to their occupier. And so they asked Jesus, should they pay the taxes? And this is a vice for Jesus, so they think at least. If he says yes, that's a very unpopular opinion. Like his approval rating is going to plummet. But if he says no, they could have him arrested on the spot for sedition, which, remind you, that's what they eventually get him on is going against the government of being a king. And so they are thinking about that, and now they have a different strategy. This one doesn't work, but they do succeed. And so Jesus asked him for a coin. They would have had him in their pockets. Pulls it out. Says, whose face is on this, right? Caesar's face. And it also would have had an inscription. It would have been coded. It wouldn't have been this long. But the code would say, Tiberius Caesar, son of the divine Augustus. The divine Augustus? That's a blasphemy coin that they have right there on their persons. Now they have to have it. But in their pockets is blasphemy. And they think they have Jesus in his tracks. But he says, give to Caesar what is Caesar's. And give to God what is God's. It's not either or, it's both and. And so in this little story right here, Jesus affirms civil government. He says that God's kingdom can exist in a Roman government, in a godless, idolatrous, corrupt, ruthless Roman government. Government, God's kingdom can exist and flourish and reach the world. That was true in Babylon. Remember when God exiled his people to Babylon and he said, you should be fruitful and multiply here. Make this place, Babylon of all places, better and beautiful. They did not like that at the time and they don't like this. It's okay to help fund the Roman government. Hmm. After all, owners imprint their images on things. Maybe it's a, a name. Maybe it's a monogram. Maybe it's a picture. This is mine. Okay, taxes. Willie Nelson didn't pay his taxes. He owed $16.7 million. He negotiated it down to six. Still making records. Love that guy. Al Capone. Think of all the terrible things he did. He got in jail for tax evasion, right? Abbott and Costello broke up the band because of taxes. Did you know that? And this one's amazing. Ty Warner, beanie baby guy. He had a $53 million penalty for not paying his taxes. Friends, pay your taxes. Public service announcement, right? It's our duty. Tax evasion is not biblical. 
We are called to vote and participate and serve in something that we don't fully agree with. But really the point is Jesus is saying, you are God's. He has put his imprint on you. So you owe him all, not some of it. You are created in the image of God. In Latin, that's the imago Dei. That each one of us have his imprint on us. We are stamped. We picture him. And so Caesar's stuff is Caesar's and God's. And we are God's all the way through and through. We give him our whole lives, all of our money, our sense, all of our thoughts, our bodies, our struggles, our impulses. And it also reminds us that each person ever in the world is created with dignity and is to be respected and honored regardless of who they are or what they look like or where they're from. Yes, we are all marred and stained by sin, but we still bear God's image from conception, fetus, nursing home. After all, God took on personhood to seek and to save people. He he was in a womb. He bled and ate and bathed and and went through puberty and learned and he cried and he got hungry and he got angry and he got sleepy in order to redeem his people. Amen. Because one more more story to show how far this goes. It's in 21, 1 through 4. We didn't read this one. It's this quick one, real quick. Jesus looked up and saw the rich putting their gifts into the offering box, and he saw a poor widow put in two small copper coins. And he said, truly, I tell you, this poor widow has put in more than all of them, for they all contributed out of their abundance, but she, out of her poverty, put it in all that she had to live on. So he, imagine the temple grounds, it's, it's packed, people everywhere, and they had these big uh, pots, faces, and they were skinny on the top and big on the bottom, right? So when you put something down, you couldn't reach down and get it. And there were 13 of them scattered around. And so what tended to happen is the, the people that had a lot of money wanted to, to make a show. And so they would sort of have a, a production team come in, you know, and they're like, hey, we're going to give our money now. And then they would do it really extravagantly so everyone could see them, so they could be noticed. Pomp and circumstance. And here's this other woman. She has two leptas. These copper coins are worth one four hundredth of a shekel. To us, they would be worth like a one-eighth of one penny. So she has two-eighths of a penny. And it's all she has. She gives Jesus all that she has. And he stopped for her. Because her tiny gift meant everything to him. At City Press, um, we would do a Christmas offering every year and we would ask everyone to bring two things, a special offering that was outside of their normal tithes and offerings and we would usually have a project and give that away, but also we asked them to give to put 
uh, on a three by five card their impossible prayer requests. Because the thought process was, we need to bring to Jesus what we have and what we need, both. We often just think we should bring what we have, our gifts, our talents, right? But Jesus all the time is saying, bring what you need, bring your needs. And he uses little tiny stuff, loaves and fishes, to multiply his work and his kingdom to show forth his glory. And I remember, this is the only time this has ever happened, a woman gave everything she had. She didn't have much. We'd been working with her. And she put it all in the offering. And I would have told her not to. I love it when kids, if you give a dollar, it's wonderful, a quarter. And then all of us give out of the abundance of what we have. For God loves a cheerful giver. Okay, there's three things, though. I want to talk about one more thing. God loves the poor and the weak and the humble and the generous. That's how he builds his kingdom. And he is the Messiah. This is the third constant, death, taxes, and a Messiah. I had this friend in, in, in Norman. We were both campus ministers. I would like being Presbyterian, but he was crazy about being Lutheran. He loved being Lutheran. And we would be in a wherever, having a beer, he he would always take a smoke or whatever. And in the middle of a conversation that really didn't have anything to do with whatever it is that was about to happen, he would stand up and start singing a hymn in German. It's like, dude, Mark, calm it down. This is not appropriate in Buffalo Wild Wings, right? But any time it could happen, any time I didn't ever know. And this is the way Jesus is sometimes. He just drops in something about that no one would have expected. In this one, he talks about Psalm 110. Okay, this is in 20, verses 41 through 44. It's very quick. But he said to them, How can they say that the Christ is David's son? For David himself says in the book of Psalms, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. David thus calls him Lord, so how is he his son? Boom, dropped. Okay, so this is why we're going to talk about this is Jesus' angle on this becomes a big, huge deal. And you really got to turn over in your Bibles if you have an actual physical Bible or scroll over there to Psalm 110 because what you'll notice is that you can see here the Lord says to my Lord. Now, if you look in your Bible, that first Lord is small caps. See that? And the second Lord is normal. When you see those small caps in the Old Testament, because this is written in Hebrew, mostly a little bit of Aramaic, and uh, the New Testament is written in Greek, and so this, is, this doesn't work in Greek. But in, in, in the Old Testament, in Hebrew, that word Lord is the word Yahweh. But it's just four letters, Y-H-W-H, English-sized uh, and, and, the, and the Jewish people wouldn't say that word. Not only would they not say it, they wouldn't write it. That's how holy the word was. By the way, it's not Jehovah. It's okay if someone says Jehovah, but it's not Jehovah. It's Yahweh. And so when you see that, that's, that's the word Yahweh, but they're going to say Lord. Now the other Lord, the normal Lord, is, is the normal connotation of the word. Lord of the manor. Lord of the house, whatever. And that's the word Adonai. Okay? And so, so what, what's happening is you're seeing that Yahweh, 
the Almighty God is saying to the Lord. We have two different things, two different people here. And David is the king, the greatest king, and he doesn't have lords over him. He's the top of the heap. So he's saying there's someone over me that Yahweh is talking to. Now that's important. David bowed his knee to this Lord, to this coming Messiah, who we read will sit at the right hand of God with a mighty scepter. He will rule. He will defeat enemies, rule with authority, reign in glory. And that's what the people want. And Jesus is saying right here, this is me. Who do you think David was talking about? He is talking about me. Jesus created David and came from David. Now this is one of the proofs of his divinity for sure. It's not really a question. It's a statement question. And there are mysteries like the Trinity and mysteries of how God can be all God and all man and the same person. And this right here, this one little tiny thing made a big impression on the people listening because this Psalm 10 thing that Jesus is doing right here is quoted 20 times in the New Testament. 20 Later, he says, the Son of Man is coming, just like Daniel says. He says that redemption is near. But it's like one of those perspective picks, you know, when someone can hold the Eiffel Tower in her hand. So how close are we? How far away are we? It depends on what perspective we have. And so it was near. It is near in eternity time. It's near. It's still near. It's coming any time. This apocalyptic language helps us to understand that God is already here and not yet here. Okay, so wrapping this up. Death, a memento mori. Think on your death. Consider your funeral. What will it be like? What legacy will you leave? And what will life look like after death for you when Jesus judges Taxes, all right? Pay your taxes. We live in this government, with this government, in this world. Whether the system you like, I don't know what, what you think about Biden or whatever, okay. We are called to be generous. Not only with our time and our talents, yes, but this church actually needs money to pay for stuff, to hire a new pastor and, and move him and his family here. Things like this take our time and our money. But most of all, follow the Messiah. Even what he says about taxes. What he says about death. Because taxes are coming, death is coming, and the Messiah is coming. The good news is taxes don't save. Death robs us. But the Messiah gives Life eternal to his people. He saves. And he's not just saving perfect people. Perfect givers. Perfect death thinkers. Or funeral planners. The good news is he pays it all. The taxes your life. 
And he takes that onto himself and pays it for you. He pays your debts out of the, the generosity of his riches. Because you are tattooed on his soul. And he is tattooed on your soul. Because you are his people. Or you can be his people. Today, his mercy is more, right? He's saying that his mercy is more. Amen.